Hello, and welcome back to the Arena Podcast by Coffin Fellows, where we dive deep into the stories of some of the most fabled names in venture capital and startups around the world. My name is Jeff Harbach, and I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and your host for this podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the hard work and dedication of our producer, Nihar Nilakanti, and our entire Coffin Fellows team and community. Coffin Fellows is a global network of venture capitalists and innovation leaders. The Coffin Fellows network includes over 1,000 fellows and mentors from 46 different countries spanning six different continents. We are powered by a two-year masterclass training program that focuses on how to be a better investor, but also on how to be a better person. We value traits like humility, empathy, intellectual curiosity, self-awareness, and gratitude, all of which contribute to what we call your behavioral fitness. Joining us in today's episode, we have Heather Hartnett, CEO of Human Ventures and Coffin Fellow from Class 23. Listen as she describes her unique upbringing and how that has impacted her view of the world of innovation and entrepreneurship. Pay special attention to the advice that she gives, like, quote, In this field, you will always be contrarian. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable and focus on your values. We can't wait to share her story with you. You are now in the arena. So for listeners, here's a quick bio on Heather Hartnett. Uh, Heather is the CEO and founding member of Human Ventures. Heather leads the team at Human and advises each Human Ventures portfolio company. There's now 11 uh, currently in the, in the class. She recently was featured in Business Insider as the first female-led startup studio in New York City, bringing a fresh new perspective to the tech scene. Heather was also named one of the 50 most influential women in America. Prior to Human Ventures, Heather founded a fintech company incubated within City Light Capital, a venture capital fund that invests in companies seeking to generate measurable social and environmental impact in addition to financial returns. Heather serves on the board of the directors of the David Lynch Foundation and is a longtime practitioner and teacher of transcendental meditation. What is transcendental meditation, by the way, Heather? Uh, transcendental meditation is a, it's a, it's a mantra-based meditation, so it's a very simple, effortless technique that you practice uh, 20 minutes twice a day, ideally. That's pretty <laughs> Ideally. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I think I need to get a little bit of that. So you're going to have to help me with that. Um, <laughs> Heather is also a member of Class 23 Coffin Fellows, and we are thrilled to have her on the show and to kind of dive a little bit deeper into what makes Heather so great. So Heather, as we just jump right in, I'd love to hear, and I'd love for the listeners to hear about what was it, what was your childhood like? You had some really influential parents in your life and uh, ones that kind of really guided you in your in your path. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and about your parents. Yeah, well, I um, well, thank you very much for that introduction. And um, reading that bio, I realized how, how quickly we're growing. So now we have 20 companies actually in our portfolio. Um, awesome. Uh, and I'm excited to, to kind of tell you the, the journey around how that came to be. I in, in my earliest childhood, when growing up, um, I didn't realize that I, I grew up in uh, an, an environment where entrepreneurial efforts were not only uh, valued, but rewarded. And I think that was something that I took for granted in the early days of my childhood, where I would really be thinking about challenges, um, solutions to problems all the time. And my parents, um, both of them worked on several different businesses together. My parents always worked together. My father was the consummate entrepreneur starting um, endeavors all the time and always seeking opportunity in in kind of white spaces. And it seemed a lot of the time that he was, quote unquote, zigging when everyone was zagging. You know, you always felt that um, you had a 
you know, he always had so much energy around each idea that he had, but it was never the norm. And I both loved that. And then sometimes, you know, cringed as a teenager. It was really hard to, to go against the grain. But little by little, I think, um, as his child and really somebody who had a strong um, affinity towards business, I just, it became very, um, almost like muscle memory to seek the opportunity that wasn't the norm. That's amazing. And, and about, tell me about your mom. My mom was absolutely, is absolutely the most um, steady, the rock of our family. So I think it really, the dynamic allowed my dad to kind of be, I always had this visual of my dad as this kite that was just kind of thrashing around in the wind and always looking for opportunity in that blue sky. And my mom was this anchor uh, down on the ground, really, you know, the littlest movement would would be able to, to really have influence over the kite. And that dynamic um, was really inspiring. That's awesome. Can you, as you think about the, uh, the formative experiences that you went through as a child, watching your dad be this, you know, this, this visionary, this creator, this, this dreamer and your mom being kind of the steady ship, which I, I love the analogy of the kite and also the person flying the kite with, you know, little movements make a big difference. Were there any, you know, think back through the times that they went through, maybe a, an exciting time, maybe a hard time. What, what were some of the things that you might have learned from them that formed the way that you think about the world now as you are this leader leading uh, human ventures? Uh, were there any things that, ju- that jump out to you? Definitely. So my, um, my grandfather was actually an entrepreneur as well. And his, he had several different careers, but um, the, the one he had when I was born uh, was a real estate developer. And he, um, you know, he, I had the experience of watching my grandfather um, envision a building and being able to put all the parts together and actually have that massive residential building or whatever it was, uh, you know, actually come to fruition. And I think there, it was very similar um, when my father was starting to create his businesses where he would see what was, what, what there was going to be, and he would build it something from nothing. And I think that, that zero to one is something that really started to become ingrained within all of us that you could see nothing and then you knew that something could come out of it. Um, one pivotal part in my early childhood was that my father became very ill. Um, when I was six years old, he, um, he had a, a disease that was kind of undiagnosed for a long time. He was sick for most of my childhood and he still managed to, um, to start three businesses you know, at that time. And his, his um, most recent business was called USA Global Link. And it was a international telecommunications company. Um, and it was at one point, you know, wildly successful. And then it also hit the time where the telecom industry completely collapsed. And he was instrumental in, in deregulating a lot of the telecom industry and in, in doing so kind of democratized that access. And um, the opportunity for profit within telecommunications completely, you know, evaporated. And many of the, and this was in 2000, many of the telco industries collapsed. He, at that time, saw the opportunity within the internet or a couple of years earlier. And so he, he kind of, he pivoted into the internet. But throughout that entire process, he had over 32 hospital stays. He was um, really challenged with his health every single day. And I think watching him with his persistence and tenacity and keeping our family together, um, those qualities, you know, I see entrepreneurs every single day 
just run up against brick walls and keep going and keep going and keep going. And I think that's a common quality with people who start businesses, that there's just nothing that can bring you down. You know, sometimes we really learn from what people say and other times we just learn from what people do. And and it looks like uh, from your father and his example of just being persistent, as you say, you really learned a lot from what he did. That's amazing. What what a great example. Okay. So you, you have this uh, a really great childhood where you have some really visionary and inspirational leaders around you. Now you go through school, you go through elementary, through high school. What were some of the things that you were thinking about as you're going through school? I mean, you've, you've got this, this bug for creating, for building, for zero to one. Uh, was school kind of a, uh, just a means to an end? What, you know, what were the, some of the things that you liked in school? Tell, tell me about kind of your, the formative experiences during school. Yeah. Uh, well, my parents were not only entrepreneurs; they were also very progressive and visionary as it came as it comes to lifestyle. So, they uh, valued um, um, Eastern philosophy. This is how I, I got into meditation. A lot of Eastern philosophy around how are you really, um, you know, kind of going within. How are you managing stress? How are you managing? And this came from my father's health too. I think a lot of um, his interest in alternative ways of, of medicine and things came from just that journey. Um, so we learned to meditate when we were very young. And it was as commonplace as do your homework, brush your teeth, meditate. And it gave me this, um, this kind of center point where you know, you can't, you, can manage, you can't manage everything that's coming at you, but you can manage your reaction to it. And I think at a, at a young age for, for a young woman, that's a very important lesson to learn uh, where the outside influences are not what's dictating your identity. It's not what's dictating what you think you should do with your life. And, um, and you can't be rocked if by other people's, you know, bullying or whatever it is, which, you know, is always inevitable. And I'm not saying that there wasn't hard times, but that's, that's definitely something that I value so much that my parents you know, taught us. And we went to a very progressive school where meditation was integrated into the curriculum. So it was a, a regular college preparatory school, um, but twice a day we meditated. And in the 80s, this was just very crazy. And, you know, nobody nobody knew about it. Nobody, you know, it was just very uncommon. But I look back at it and now it's become very mainstream. And I, I'm very grateful for that early um, exposure. Along with that, creativity was really emphasized in the school. And so I did something called Odyssey of the Mind. And uh, that was an extracurricular uh, activity for, for some of the students that wanted to, to compete. It was, there was actually, a, it was a world, like a world challenge competition thing against other teams of other schools. And I think that it was so instrumental in creating different neuroplasticity in your brain of thinking about problems in a different way um, being encouraged to solve problems without adults. You had a team of seven kids and, um, and then going to, to actually compete. So you had to deal with, uh, you know, the pressures of competition and getting prepared and all of this stuff. And those things, it might seem trivial that it's in, in you know, middle school and high school, but it, it was very instrumental in the way that I gained confidence, much like people have in the debate team or things like like that. I think it's important in those early formative years to have all types of exposure like that. And this is, and then you ended up going to Maharishi School of Management. Is that the same? Is, is that the follow-on from the prep school, or was that the, is this the same school? Uh, it's a follow-on from the prep school. Yeah, it's it's so, uh, yeah. 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Tell us about that. <laughs> um, this is a university. I studied business. I studied management, did traditional courses. Um, but they also had the first sustainable living major ever offered in the in the country. They had um, architecture that um, that had Eastern philosophy incorporated into it. They had um, Ayurvedic medicine and alternative integrative health alongside the medical school. And it was a, it, it is a, a very progressive school. They had David Lynch, the film director, does his master class there. Uh, it's it's a very creative environment. Um, I chose business because it's something I knew I really wanted to do. And I <clears throat> I think that they afforded me the ability at, at MUM to um, to really create a lot of my own entrepreneurial endeavors around business at a time where that that wasn't any type of class. So you came up with such a non-traditional upbringing with uh, with with parents that were that encouraged meditation, that encouraged kind of self-reflection and and understanding yourself, but also such creativity. What's the what's the first thing you did? What's the first kind of startup venture or first first piece of uh, creativity in building something that you did? Well, well, I I had started little businesses all throughout uh, um, elementary school. I mean, I had a hair clip business. I had I took orders for. I used to travel a lot, and, and there was a time where with my dad's business, we we lived in Europe. And Europe had this candy that was not offered in the U.S. And so in, in third grade, I used to buy a whole bunch of that candy and I'd come back to the U.S. and I would sell it. I always had some sort of a side hustle, side business. And it was something that I knew I was going to consistently do. My dad, in the 90s, we started buying domain names. <clears throat> and, um, you know, you could get, you could just type it in and you could get what you wanted. And so we had a huge portfolio of dorm, domain names. We still do. And um, we would sit around the table and brainstorm what, what businesses we could create on each one of those websites. So we did. When I started to teach myself to code um, in 90, 97, I think, and I started, I mean, it was very, very rudimentary, you know, um, HTML sites. And we'd put, uh, we'd put up things and, and we'd sell them. And I'd, I'd um, you know, I, I learned the dynamics of what the marketplace was. So I think... Early on, I loved the internet and I loved um, figuring out how to interact with the internet. And and um, some of my businesses were around that. All right, that's that's incredible. So I want to jump now into kind of present day. So you what, talk to us about what led uh, from your growth from graduating from Maharishi School of Management <laughs> to where you are today. And maybe maybe what we can start with is you were thinking about, as you've gone through all this uh, different personal growth, you were thinking about maybe going back to graduate school. What was that decision like? And why, why were you thinking about, you know, what was, what was the decision tree there for, for graduate school? Well, I knew I wanted to get some experience before going back to grad school. My, you know, my dad said, well, what business are you going to start after I graduated school? He's like, what, what are you starting? That's what, that's Hartnett's doing. I love it. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, so I had, you know, we had a friend who was a venture capitalist and uh, he had a fund out in, in the Bay Area. And he said, well, why don't you come and watch me rip apart business plans, so to speak, and see, you know, a lot of the <laughs> students from Haas Business School come and pitch to us and you can start to see what, what types of businesses are out there. And, you know, when my dad was an entrepreneur, vulture capital was the term. It wasn't venture capital. There wasn't a, um, a founder-friendly term sheet when he was a founder. So when I told him that, he, he wasn't, he was very skeptical. 
but I loved it. I loved working with, it was Nat Goldhaber at Claremont Creek Ventures. I love seeing what he was doing. Um, he, he, to me, it looked like he had the best job in the world. And he had a very entre- uh, entrepreneurial angle to investing because he himself uh, is a founder. And he also had a very um, so, a lens of social impact. And it started to get my wheels going that you could actually invest for innovation that was just as effective as, say, philanthropy, right? So I used to do research. My beat for him was really research around the unbanked and how technology was going to help the unbanked in in, um, small towns in Africa. And, and, you know, a lot of what he he hypothesized has come true with with mobile payments and such. But there there weren't mobile payments at that point. And so continue through that. I'd love to hear as you, as you got that experience there, then you're, you know, walk us through what, what got you to thinking about grad school versus maybe just going straight into where you are today. All right. Well, at that point, venture had a very uh, long path, especially for, for women. I think, um, you know, I came, still does. Yeah. And I came at a very, very bottom of the rung, you know, doing research. So I knew that, It was, it was kind of, you worked your way up and then you went to grad school at some point and then you came back and then you would work for another seven years and then maybe you'd be partner. And that was, you know, a daunting, a daunting path. Um, I started really becoming friends with a lot of people who were founders. Facebook was just started. It was an exciting time to be in the Bay Area at that time. And you, you can't help but, um, but catch the bug for, for the entrepreneurial spirit out there at that time. And so I, I worked at various startups. I, um, I ended up, I was also volunteering for what was becoming the David Lynch Foundation. You talked about um, that in my bio. And so simultaneously, you know, with with tech and startups and and business creation, philanthropy has always been a very strong, um, played a very strong role in my life. We've always, um, you know, no matter how much you have, you always give a portion of what you have away to service. Um, You always always have some part of your life in, in service. And so my life has always been a kind of a junction point between those those two things. How can you how can you almost marry those two things? And at this time in my life, um, an opportunity came to start the David Lynch Foundation's New York office. And it wasn't a it wasn't a foundation yet. Now it's you know it's a multinational um, uh, foundation. They've they've done incredible work, um, but it was really a startup itself. And so I moved to New York, um, you know, with this almost entrepreneurial endeavor in the nonprofit sector um, in 2008. It's a really exciting time, and it was also an opportunity for me to be exposed to a completely different network. Our largest donor was Ray Dalio. Um, he he underwrote the the office, and he um, was very instrumental in in launching the David Lynch Foundation. And what what an amazing man, Ray Dalio. Um, as you talk talk about this service component, was there anything that kind of was that that watershed moment for you that, where you said, "Oh my gosh, this is I want to make sure that service is a big component of my life"? Because obviously, you said it was. What was that one kind of moment that it just clicked for you that you said, "This is something that has to be a permanent stay in my life or a permanent part of what I do in my day to day life." I, yeah, I don't think there is one moment. I think it's something that you think about every day. And we and I try to make my daily life, I try not to have it separate. So I, I think my life's mission is to continuously have them come closer and closer so that everything that you do every day um, fulfills both sides of your, you know, of my ambition, which is how are you giving back to the world and how are you creating value in the world? Uh, and those two things shouldn't shouldn't have to be separate. I think, uh, you know, just jumping to some of the philosophical stuff. I think 
in philanthropy in general, people used to make their wealth and then they were at a stage where they say, okay, now how do I give back? What do I want to give back? So you're 75 years old at that point. Um, now I think the next generation of philanthropists is really saying, how can we give at every moment? How can we be spending our life work doing something we feel passionate about? And, and that really gets to the opportunities that I think we see in terms of what the biggest businesses are going to be in the next 10 years. But we can jump to that in a moment. <clears throat> you, you asked me a couple of times you know, about my, my journey for grad school. And, um, and I just want to go back to that. I, I think, you know, when I was, when I was um, starting out in venture, I knew that that was going to be something I had to do. And it was in my mind saying, you have to go back to grad school. You have to go back to grad school. When I was at the David Lynch Foundation, um, it seemed like the perfect time when I wanted to pivot from being in nonprofit back to investing. So I started to apply to grad school and um, I started interviewing a, a bunch of the firms. And with this theme of marrying the two, impact investing and, um, I mean, uh, philanthropy and investing, I came to impact investing, which was now becoming a term that didn't exist prior to, you know, to that time. So um, I thought I would go back to grad school to be able to really learn about impact investing. Well, it was a new and up and coming kind of, uh, you know, thought and people, only very few funds were actually in, doing this in practice. So I started interviewing those funds and I was offered a job. And I figured that at this time in my life, I was 32 at that time or 30. And I, um, I thought opportunity cost, I should jump in to work with the people who are actually forming what impact investing is becoming today versus uh, going back to school um, to, you know, to try and learn in the conventional way. Builder mentality. <laughs> learn by doing. So, yeah. Learn by doing. So that must have been something where you you experienced some some risks, taking some risks and also some challenges. Uh, can you tell us about something that's where you had to take a big risk, but conviction got, got you through it? Uh, maybe it's through you know, your journey through impact investing. Maybe it leads you all the way up to human ventures. Tell us about a time that where you had you had to take a risk and things were hard and what you learned from it. I think every major um, jump in my career where I've, I've had a kind of a seismic uh, step up, if you will, will be, is around a time that I've taken the most risk. And I think I, you know, I've thought a lot about this because I, um, you know, I've had very fortunate, in, I've been very fortunate in my life to be able to take those types of risks. But I, I created those opportunities as well. You know, working in a nonprofit, I, I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't have things that, you know, kept me afloat. Um, I, I had to do side projects to be able to make enough money to actually decide that I wanted to leave my job and go back into venture. And I think, you know, to be able to have that mentality of can you set yourself up to give you a little bit of wiggle room to be able to take that risk um, changes your life. and a lot of it stems around the relationships that you build. So I think deep network and, you know, the, the cliched term of your network is your net worth. Um, I think now we've gone a little bit past that and it's your deep relationships are what make you successful in life. And so I started to really say, who, who are the people who I want in my as my personal board of directors, as, as my personal tribe? And how can I start nurturing those relationships so that I can learn the most um, to take the next step in my career and what I want to do? So um, I think that, you know, a specific time when I left City Light Capital to start Human Ventures, I think that was one of the most risky things. Um, you know, there were 
under 5% venture firms who had female GPs. There, um, there were very few um, funds in New York. There were very few company builders in existence. Um, there were a few entrepreneurs in New York, you know, and this was in, in 2015. And, um, and I owe it to some of my trusted relationships. You know, my partner, Joe Marchese, is a serial entrepreneur. He saw my conviction and my excitement and what we wanted to build. And he backed me. And, you know, he gave me the permission to, to leap. And I think that's really important to find those people who believe in you and who understand your value, even if the world doesn't conventionally know your value. What do you bring to the table? Who are the people who see eye to eye with that? And are they in a position to help you? Um, help you grow. Such important advice. So now as we jump forward to human ventures, it seems like this perfect kind of, I, I want to say crescendo because it's, it just has taken all the things that you've done up until this point, And it just feels like this perfect uh, out, uh, outcome of, of all the things that you've learned and grown and done, but it's not a crescendo. It's just the beginning. Just the beginning. It's, it's just, it's an, <laughs> It's just another start into something that's going to be fantastic. Tell us about what you're doing now with Human and what gets you jumping out of bed in the morning and what gets you really excited. You know, I think venture capital is changing. I think the dynamics of how the economics work are changing. Um, the investors who were really there from the beginning and used to take that really early risk with the founder, um, the appetite for that has changed. The risk tolerance has changed. And so the funds that were traditionally early stage funds have, you know, company buildings becoming more sophisticated. They have more rigor around what they're investing in, rightly so. They're raising larger funds. Um, you know, who's there at the earliest stages? And so we had to make that decision when we launched Human. Do we want to be a traditional fund or do we want to be, you know, in what we called formation capital? So the earliest stages of, of building with an entrepreneur, can we be that check? Um, and and in, those, in those stages, the market and the opportunity and the, and the idea, it, it means something, but it, we call it the myth of the big idea. It really has nothing to do with how that company is going to succeed. It's really around who's driving it, who's the vision driver, so the why this founder, and then why now? What's the timing? What are the trends? What are the big um, areas of opportunity that we see in the next 10 years? And can we hit them you know, right on the head? Our business of venture capital is you have to get it right on the money. The timing, the person, the trend, you know, the, the zeitgeist, um, the funding relationships, and so it all has to be a perfect storm. And so with Human Ventures, we just that philosophy that I talked about of, of that relationship, that deep relationship being the, the premium, uh, we wanted to create that with Human Ventures. How can you create a, uh, a good human mafia, if you will, of people who are, who are there uh, devoted to helping your business succeed? I just love it. And as you think about now coaching all these entrepreneurs and helping them kind of find that perfect storm of all those different ideas, what what do you think humanity should be focusing our resources on right now? What should they be what should they be looking to build? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, we we just had our offsite last week with Human and it was one of the most mind-bending things we we put ourselves through this design thinking process that we often facilitate for founders at Human Ventures. And it was really put yourself in a world where this is an, a, a reality. And some of those things were the, the world is 20 billion in population or, you know, we, we can't, uh, we can't 
breathe in the air as we know it, or um, identity is now, you know, privacy is just ubiquitous and it doesn't exist. And identity is something that you have to have as fluid. And we started thinking about what the world looked like through those eyes. And uh, one, you know, one thing that as we become much more automated, as machines start to uh, really take over our life, we start to think, how are you coming back to more of the human focused um, problems in life? And a lot of that's around um, ethics, it's around wellness, it's around um, how are you maintaining relationships, how are you deepening them, how are you finding meaning in life? Uh, some of these things that as Maslow's hierarchy, you know, of needs, um, when machines are automating, this isn't just in the developed country, you know, you see um, underdeveloped countries leapfrogging us in technology. And when technology is the basis for automating a lot of those early, you know, um, needs, you know, the most more base level of needs, um, what are the things that are more valued? Can I come to your next offsite? That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, as far as humanity, I think we need to figure out how to, you know, how to think a little bit more holistically and not so individualistically. Um, I think people would think that I sound very altruistic, but we do live in a world of optimism and you kind of have to because, you know, starting companies is, is not easy. And um, every day we're with founders who optimistically think they're going to make a difference, whether it's helping women, um, you know, who suffer from hypothyroidism, whether it's we have a company that's working on um, with licensed child psychologists to be able to help parents really understand better how they're parenting. Um, we have an incredible company that's helping, you know, educators have have more income. So imagine a world where our teachers earn more than investment bankers. What does our whole construct look like in that point? Um, I think that's the world that we have to live in so that we're building companies that in five to 10 years, they're the ones that are on the stock exchange. They're the ones that are creating value in our society. As you look at the your life's journey, and the hero's journey that is within you and all the experiences that you've had. We have this, as, as you think about and you talk about at your offsite, the future and what the future looks like with ethics and wellness and finding meaning in life when technology is the basis for everything that we have. Our, the, our kids and our children's children are going to be growing up into this world where they're going to be searching for those exact same things. Based on your journey and the things that you went through from uh, the med the focus on meditation, the focus on creativity, what, what advice or what would you like to say to next generations that are going to be entering this world where technology is the, the foundation, the basis of everything that we do, and we're going to have to bring more of a human touch in addition to that? What, what would you, what advice would you give them uh, as they're thinking through school, through, you know, uh, kind of coming up and going through life? Ah, this is a good question. So I'll take it from two standpoints. One, a personal advice and two, business advice. First, personal advice, I would say find your center, find your core, uh, find your true north or your kind of moral center as, as quickly as you can. And whether that's assembling a group of trusted people who you can bounce things off of and start to create your own moral center or, you know, where you have some sort of technique that allows you to tap into something a little bit, a little bit deeper. Um, I think it's really important because in this field, you will always be contrarian. If you're doing something that will be known or mass, you know, adopted in 10 years, right now it's not. So by definition, you're never going to be comfortable with your state. It's not going to be something that people are going to be on board with. Uh, right away. And so I, I think you have to be 
comfortable being uncomfortable. And so being able to understand your um, non-starters, you know, what are some non-negotiables in your life that you can, can construct? And those are your values or your principles personally. I think that's really important. So that's one piece of advice. And, you know, I'm not saying I did this perfectly, but I think that every day I work at what are my values and, and what are the principles that I want to live by now when I'm 50 and when I'm, you know, 80 and what do I want to teach my children? Um, then, then that's something that I think about all the time. Professionally getting into venture, I mean, I think the landscape is changing so much. So I would just say, find out where you can add the most value because it really is, um, for lack of a better term, an entrepreneurial environment, which means don't think that you're going to do a very you know, laddered path to venture where you go to school for venture and you graduate for venture. You know, it's not, it's not a linear path. And I think the people who have proven to be successful at this, they think in a, in a different way and, um, and they've been able to demonstrate value in a place where other people have not been able to see uh, that that's going to, to, that's going to become valuable. Heather, you, I, I've been so impressed with you. You've, and, and I've loved this conversation. You are, um, you've really honed kind of this, this looking within and being centered and, and being present. And I just view you as someone that is incredibly grounded and confident and, and humble and, and centered. And what an amazing uh, example you are to, uh, to entrepreneurs, to venture investors and to, uh, to women because of all the things that, the wonderful things that you're doing. So I applaud you. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for joining us and for being in the arena uh, on the Coffin Fellows podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. I, I appreciate it. I hope we can prove, uh, you know, you, know, you don't really know if you're, you're good at this industry until, you know, you're 10 years, 20 years in. So what I, I feel really good about the investments that we've made, about the people that we've invested in and uh, about the networks that I've surrounded myself with, um, which really, really speaks to Kaufman. I, I think that it's, it's the most valuable network I've found within this industry. So I really appreciate it. And thank you for giving me that opportunity. You bet. And I, I wanted to give you the last word, but I got to say, you're right. Feedback cycles are long in venture, but impact cycles are short. And it is very easy to see the impact that you're having. Um, so again, thank you so much for what you're doing, Heather. Thank you. Thank you.